you, Faye Podcast Music. Da 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 da. Hello and welcome to Michigan Another Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other random mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. All right, Jen. I've got the last one I did was people not killed by John Norman Collins. Mm -hmm. And this one is people who were killed by John Norman Collins. A long-awaited one, because you know we've had a couple people ask about it. Yes, well, as soon as I said that I wanted to do a podcast and it was going to include murder, among other things, immediately the people around us were like, you've got to do John Norman Collins, because we have a friend whose dad was friends with him. And one of the things we're going to talk about is that he possibly killed a woman in their basement, and they said that they helped him clean the basement. So I'm like, that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. What you got? I have the death of Addison Redman of Ithaca. Ithaca. Uh huh. Ithaca, Michigan. Ithaca, Michigan. All right, let me go first because he's. I got... was going to say Ithaca. Oh, yeah? I know it's Ithaca. Ithaca. Yeah. Ithaca. yeah. I know this. He's killed like. He's killed a lot of people. It's going to take a second. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the late 1960s in Southeast Michigan, there was a serial kip- killer who would be given the names of the Michigan murderer, the co-ed killer, and the Ypsilanti Ripper. John Norman Collins had killed six women in the Ypsilanti Ann Arbor area from 1969 or 1967 to 1969, and he killed one girl in California while on vacation. Okay, how many? He killed all together. Six women, seven oh, all together. Seven all together. Okay, yep. I got it. His methods for murder include stabbing, strangling, beating, and shooting. Jane Mixer was originally considered one of his victims, but Gary Lederman's later convicted. So we've already discussed that one. I must have put that sentence in before I decided to do the other (laughs) article. (laughs) So Mary Therese Flazar is the the first known victim. She was 19 years old. Um, Pause. Pause in. And we're back. I was going to say, unpause. Unpause, because we had to eat. Yeah, and drink coffee. <laughs> and get more coffee. Yeah. I mean, the food was pretty good. So Mary Fleaser, who was 19 years old, was the first victim of the co-ed killer. Mary was about 5'2", and she weighed around 110 pounds. She had brown hair and wore glasses. Mary, who was an Eastern Michigan University student, was seen alive on July 9th, 1967, by a neighbor. She had been walking to her apartment in Ypsilanti, Michigan. And the next day, Mary's roommate called the police, who were initially unconcerned. You know, they're like, oh, I'm sure she'll be back. No big deal. But once they realized that it's out of character for Mary and that all her belongings are still in the apartment, they're like, oh, shit, maybe we should look for her because, you know, nothing's gone. She's not gone. So their only lead was the neighbor who saw Mary walking home. The neighbor told police that as Mary was walking, a man in a blue-gray Chevrolet approached her car twice, trying to talk to her from the car. And each time, Mary shook her head no and walked away from the car. And Mary was last seen wearing a bright orange dress with white polka dots and wearing sandals. So that's the last time anybody sees her. Mary's dead body was found on August 7, 1967, on a farm near Gettys and LaForge Roads. Um, two 15-year-old boys discovered her after they heard a car door slam and then a car drive away. She was found lying in the weeds nude. 
Mary had been stabbed between 30 and 40 times in her chest and abdomen. She had been severely beaten. Mary's color, killer had cut off both of her feet and portions of one of her hands and part of one of her arms. And Mary's severed body parts were never recovered. So evidence at the scene shows that Mary's killer moved her body at least three different times after murdering her. And being left in the elements for a month, her body was badly de decomposing. And the clothing that was identified as hers was found covered in a pile of debris by her body. Two days after Mary was identified, a young man came to the Moore funeral home and asked to take pictures of her body. And his explanation was that the family had asked him to do it as a keepsake photograph. But the employees at the funeral home refused him entry and he left the premises. The secretary at the funeral home noticed that the man drove a blue-gray Chevrolet. Later, none of the employees recalled him carrying a camera. They're like, oh shit, yeah, this guy didn't even have a camera on him. And Mary's family did not request a photograph. The funeral home workers weren't able to give a good description of the man. So just somebody trying to get a picture of her dead body. Joan Elspeth Schnell is the second known victim. Joan Schnell was 20 years old when she was abducted on July 1st, 1968 one year after Mary's death. Joan had grown up in Plymouth, a nearby city, and had just moved to Ypsilanti to become an art student at EMU. Joan had last been seen hitchhiking to Ann Arbor by her roommate after Joan missed the bus. There were three men in the car, with the last person she had been seen with was John Norman Collins, who was a student and he was failing out of Eastern Michigan University. John's friends had gotten out of the car at a different location than John and Joan. So, well, he was failing because he was too busy murdering people. Yeah, he had other things on his mind. Yeah. yeah. John had said that he left Joan in a parking lot later after she refused his sexual advances. I was like, to me, that's like a thousand red flags plus one red blinking light. You know yeah. what I mean? Another link between the two is that John had recently been kicked out of his fraternity and lived across the street from Joan. When the police questioned John, he provided his mother, who lived in Detroit, as his alibi. And she mm. agreed. But we're going to find out later. I know. Yeah. Joan's body was found five days later in nearby Ann Arbor by construction workers on their site. Joan had been stabbed 47 times and raped. The medical examiner determined that she had been dead for five days, but her body had been dumped at that location within 24 hours. The lower portion of her body was well-preserved, but the upper portion was dark and leathery as if it had been exposed to the elements. And her body had been covered in clumps of grass in a weak effort to conceal her. Like someone just put like clumps of grass over her. She had her clothing um, up around her neck. And the wounds on Joan's body were similar enough that her death was connected to that of Mary Flazar. And then four detectives are assigned to the case of the, these two murdered girls. Hmm. So Marilyn Skelton is the third known victim. Marilyn Skelton was 16 years old when she was found murdered March 25th, 1969. She had been missing for about two days without being reported to the police due to a strained relationship with her family. So she was known for taking off. Marilyn had attended Romulus High School before dropping out. Marilyn was known to run with a rough crowd and had a history of drug use and dealing. And she had last been seen on Washtenaw Avenue hiking, hitchhiking. Not hiking. You can't hike. <laughs> oh, gosh, no, but you can hitchhike. <laughs> yeah. 
Marilyn's body was discovered a couple hundred yards from the site in which Joan Schnell had been found. Her death was much more savage in its execution than the other two. And Marilyn had been covered in welts, having been whipped with a leather strap. There were multiple fractures on the right side of her face and skull, which were crushed injuries from a blunt object. Marilyn's shirt had been shoved so far into her mouth that pieces were found in her trachea. And marks across her upper torso show that she was restrained at some point. A branch from a nearby tree had been inserted into her vagina. Marilyn had a garter belt tied around her neck, and blood splatter at the scene showed that it's likely that her death occurred there. Hmm. Marilyn's death was connected to the serial killer now being called the Michigan Murderer or the Co-Ed Killer, and a task force was created. The connection came from the location of the body and the material being tied around her neck, because now all three girls have had stuff around their neck. Some people speculated that the killing was due to a drug issue. So the fourth girl is Dawn Bassam, Bassam, or Bassam. In the weeks, the weeks late, okay, so weeks later, on April 15th, 1969, around 7.30 p.m., Dawn Bassam, who was 13 years old, left a friend's house to walk home, which was less than a mile away. Another friend accompanied her most of the way and then leaving her to walk the last five blocks alone. So Dawn's dead body was found the next morning at 6.30 a.m. on the side of the road in Ypsilanti, not far from where Mary Skelton was found. Dawn had been strangled with an electrical cord, stabbed, and her body had been partially disrobed. She was still wearing her white bra and her shirt was pushed up around her neck. There were slash wounds on her breasts and buttocks and a handkerchief was stuffed in her mouth. So I wrote, side note, I wrote articles, I read articles that said Dawn had been raped and I read some articles that said that she hadn't been raped. So I'm not sure what to think on that one. I don't mm. want to say it either way. But one of Dawn's shoes was found about 50 yards away from her body, with the other one being found on the opposite side of the road in a ditch. And the sweater that she was wearing was found in an abandoned farmhouse nearby. And in the basement of the farmhouse, police were able to find more of the electrical cord that had been used to murder Dawn. The blood at the scene was fresh, leading police to believe that they found their first kill site and not just the site to dump bodies. So they think, okay, I think he killed her here and then dumped her body there. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, the uh, third victim, the girl Marilyn Skelton, they thought it was weird because she was killed and her body was found in the same place. So that's one of the ones that people always wonder, is it really John Norman Collins that killed this girl? Yeah. Or someone that was trying to make it look that way. So, continuing to look through the farmhouse... A week later, police found a gold earring that they believed belonged to Marilyn Skelton. So they're like, maybe it was him, right? The third known victim. Authorities also found a new piece of Dawn's shirt in the home. So due to all the time they spent inspecting the home, because they went through it like with a fine-tooth comb, they go back and there's new items there. So that made police believe that those items were brought by the killer recently. Because they're like, we went through this house, looked through everything, we come back and there's souvenirs from other girls there mm -hmm. so after the discovery of the new items the house burned down may 13 1969 as a student in the eighth grade dawn was the youngest victim so this part here might be legend all right i read it in a couple articles but i've got some problems with it so when authorities arrived at the scene of the fire the house they found five lilac blossoms laying on the ground they believed it was a message from the killer However, as we concluded earlier, Jane Mixer is not one of his victims, so there wouldn't have been five blossoms. 
right? There'd only been four. Because at the time they thought Jane Mixer was John Norman Collins' murder victim, but we find out later she's not. So why would there be five blossoms? There's only four people. So I wrote either one, the lilacs never happened. That's just an urban legend. Or two, someone messed up on the number, right? There was really four there, but they said five. Or three, he killed somebody we don't know about. Yeah. And there are five lilac blossoms. I would say three. Okay. So the fifth known victim, victim is Alice Elizabeth Callum. Alice Callum was 21 years old, and she was from Portage, Michigan. Alice was enrolled in the fine, art program, fine arts program at University of Michigan. Three weeks after Dawn's death, okay, and it has it either June 7th or June 8th of 1969, Alice went to a party, and she was last seen walking home. The following day, three teenage boys walking by North Territorial Road found her body. Alice had been stabbed, raped, as well as shot in the head one time. Her clothes were scattered in the area, and Alice's shoes were missing. The day after her body was found, clues to her murder site here were also discovered. In Northville Township, at a Northville Township construction site, workers found dried blood stains and two buns from Alice's coat, making it the, lo- the likeliest location for her murder. Okay. So, like, he stepped it up, because now he's got a gun. Yeah, well, he stepped it up, and now he's doing it more frequently. Because at one point, there was a, a year between number one and number two. And now it's just, like, weeks and shit like that. A few months, a couple weeks. So, Karen Sue Bynaman, she's the sixth known victim. She was 18 years old and a student at Eastern Michigan University. Her roommate, Sherry Green, reported her missing when she didn't return, turn, um, return to the dorm for curfew. Karen was last seen at a wig shop. On July 23, 1969, at the shop, Karen told a, um, told a clerk and the store, man, man, uh, store manager, quote, I've got to be either the bravest or the dumbest girl alive because I just accepted a ride from some guy. And this prompted the manager and another employee to look out the window, giving them a good look at the young man sitting on his motorcycle outside the shop. So they both like go and they look out the window and they... They estimated around three or four minutes they just looked at this guy, like, you know, going back and forth and looking at him. Well, three days later, Karen's body was found naked and face down in a gully. And I wrote, that's a ravine made by water flow, (laughs) just in case. (laughs) And Karen was severely beaten with portions of her skull being lacerated. She had extensive skull and brain injuries from a blunt object. Karen had been forced to ingest a caustic substance that was also used to burn her neck, shoulders, and breasts. Cloth had been driven into her throat and her panties had been stuffed into her vagina. Karen's cause of death was listed as strangulation. Police were able to find like little short hairs on her person, like whole bunches of little short hairs. So the police had unsuccessfully tried twice to create a media blackout surrounding the discovery of the bodies, but the discovery of Karen was successfully suppressed. So they managed to finally do a blackout. They placed a mannequin in the gully to entice her killer back because they know he goes back. Because remember, those young boys heard someone coming. Mm-hmm. They can tell that the bodies have been moved, so they know that he's coming back, that he's re- visiting them. So they wait for the scene, and the following morning, during a heavy rainstorm, the officers staking out the scene saw a young man running from the gully. He didn't see the, the man approach the gully, and rain, because it was raining really hard, had shorted out his radio, so the young man was able to get away. So I wrote down... Here's the last part. Here's where we find John. Two days after Karen's body was found, there's a crack in the case. 
When the police retraced Karen's steps, the two women working at the wig shop remembered her and the man they saw her drive off with the last day she was alive. They were able to identify John Collins in a photograph. John refused to take a polygraph test and the police didn't have enough evidence to bring him in. That's not enough to, you know, charge somebody. The next day, John's roommate, Arnold Davis, told police that he had opened their apartment door for John to leave and John was carrying a box that was partially covered by a blanket. What Arnold could see was a purple shoe, uh, rolled up material that looked like jeans, and a burlap purse. And John told Arnold that he had to get rid of the stuff in the box. John had detailed knowledge of the desk <clears throat> and liked to tell his co-workers about each woman's injuries. And when he was questioned, he told them that his uncle, Sheriff David Leak, had given him the information. And his uncle David had recently been on vacation with his family leaving John to dog sit at their home. And when the Leak family came back, Sandra, David's wife, noticed spots on the basement floor that were covered in paint. Sandra also noticed that items from the basement were missing, like a bottle of ammonia, laundry powder, and some black paint. Mm. So the day they came back, police told David Leak of his nephew's status as a suspected killer. They're like, we think your nephew is this killer. And the next morning, David scraped up some of the paint on the basement floor, revealing what looked like blood stains. So he immediately went to the station and told him what he found. And the leak basement was then gone over with a fine tooth, fine tooth, uh, tooth comb. So the stains on the floor were determined to be varnish. But I heard that when they said to John Collins, we looked at the stains and it appears they're varnish, they're, they are varnish, he started to cry. I think that it really was more than varnish, but he managed to successfully, you know, cover it up. Mm -hmm. Because other, why other, why other, oh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so, while inspecting the basement, investigators found a multitude of little short hairs. Sheriff Leaf, Leak explained that his wife would cut his children's hair in the basement and had done so before leaving for vacation. She had cut their hair. So the hairs found on Karen Benjamin's person were inspected against those found in the basement. And a neutron analysis revealed that it was from the same individuals, because we don't have DNA in 1969. Mm -hmm. John had a court-appointed attorney named Richard Ryan. At Richard's request, John did submit to taking a polygraph test, with the results remaining confidential. That was part of the um, agreement that they would remain confidential. But after the polygraph, Richard Ryan suggested using diminished capacity as part of an insanity defense. So he sees the polygraph and he's like, yeah. maybe we should say you're crazy. But John Collins' mom was pissed. I mean, just incensed. Her son was a high school honors student who was attending Eastern Michigan <laughs> University to become a teacher. So she fires Ryan Richards and she remortgages her home and hires this high-end law firm from Detroit. During his trial, John did not speak for his own defense. He was already on trial for the death of Karen Bynaman. So he's only on trial, trial for Karen's death, for Karen Bynaman, as there wasn't enough evidence to connect him to the other murders. It's okay. So there's only proof that he often lived, worked, or frequented the areas where the women were also at, but the evidence is circumstantial. So while in the courtroom, it's proven that John had asked his roommate, Arnold, to provide him with a false alibi for the time that Karen was killed. The blood and tissue samples were matched to Karen. So the jury spent 27 hours. I hate when I say so. <laughs> spent 27 hours over three days deliberating the evidence from the trial. 
When the jury, the guilty verdict was announced, John's mom and sister left the courtroom in tears. And throughout the years, John has re- uh, appealed his case repeatedly, being denied each time. Although John was not charged with other crimes committed by the co-ed killer, there were links to him and the other women. Karen Fleezar, the first known victim, and John worked across the hall from each other at EMU. And when police searched his room, a necklace that Karen was known to wear was found in his dresser. Joan Schnell, the second known victim, was last seen with John. She accepted a ride from a car uh, with three men in it. Two of the men and um, two of them were John and his roommate Arnold. And Arnold claimed that after he got out of the car, John was alone with Joan. Three hours later, John came back to their apartment telling Arnold that he had dropped Joan off. John referred to Joan as a bitch and told Arnold that she had rejected his advances. John was carrying a red handbag that he said Joan had left in the car. John's mom had provided an alibi for the time of that murder, but according to Arnold, that was not true. John was not with his mom. Arnold also connected John to Alice Callum, the fifth known victim. He said that when um, he had heard John and Alice arguing the night that she disappeared, so John does know Alice, with John chasing after Alice as she ran from the apartment. When John returned later, he asked Arnold to hide a knife for him. When Arnold handed the knife over to the authorities, investigators determined that the knife was consistent with the wounds found in Alice's body. The purple shoe that Arnold saw in a box that John was carrying matched a pair that Alice owned. And in recent years, DNA on Alice was matched to John. Okay, so here's Roxanne, Roxy Ann Phillips, the seventh known victim. John Collins spent some time in California from June 21st, 1969 until about the second week of July. He was traveling with another roommate named Andrew Manuel. The two of them drove there in John's Oldmobile Cutlass towing a, t- a camper. They had rented the camper using false names and a stolen check. Roxy Phillips was 17 years old at the time of her murder and friends introduced her to a man named John from Michigan. John said he was an Eastern Michigan. Mich- Eastern Michigan University student who was studying to be a teacher. Nancy Albrecht, one of Roxy's friends, met John and described him to detectives with a description matching that of John Norman Collins. Roxy's body was found nude and battered in a ravine that was rife with poison oak on July 13, 1969. The belt of her dress was knotted around her neck and Roxy had been strangled to death. She was missing one earring. Roxy's personal possessions were found scattered down State Route 68 in California. John had returned to Michigan around the same time without the camper or Andrew. Andrew was later found in Arizona, and the camper was found in Andrew's grandfather's house. According to Andrew's grandfather, the two men lived in the camper briefly. When police checked the camper for evidence, it was completely wiped of prints. I mean, the camper was like forensic detective wiped down like they did everything police were able to find medical records of john being treated for a severe allergic reaction to poison oak in california the day after roxy's murder and remember she was found in a field Mm -hmm. of poison oak after michigan police arrested john and went through his home a piece of red and white belt that matched the one found around roxy's neck was found in john's belongings A sweater that was found in John's closet had 22 pubic hairs on it. Roxy's body was exhumed, and when the found hairs were compared to those 
on her body, they were found to be a match. California originally applied to extradite John Norman Collins to California so that he could stand trial for Roxy's murder. They do have the death penalty. However, after John was found guilty in Michigan, they waived their right. Because Michigan um, law states that those who are found guilty of first-degree murder will remain in prison without the possibility of parole. So they're like, he's not getting out. There's no reason. Yeah. So an article in the Detroit Free Press that came out in November of 2019 said that there were DNA samples from two more of the victims that have yet to be tested. Joan Schnell and Marilyn Skelton had DNA left on them during their rape and murder. Detectives recently had lengthy interviews with John to see if time had changed his mind about his willingness to talk. Retired Sergeant Jim, okay, it's pronounced Bunshu, has interviewed John at least three times. John recently admitted that he had met Alice Callum shortly before she was murdered and that they had dated. So before he said he doesn't know her, now Mm -hmm. he's like, okay, we did date. So previously he denied knowing her at all. John had written letters to one of his cousins in Canada in 2013 that is named John Chapman. John Norman Collins was originally born in Canada. After his parents divorced, John's mom, who was an American, moved back to the States with her children, and John was hoping to convince his cousins of cousin, John Chapman, of his innocence and a part of John Collins' desire to move to a Canadian prison. He's been trying hard to get to Canada. At one point, the move was considered, but then later rejected by the Canadian government. John's letters reveal a man who is domineering, he is angry at his mom, and he is misogynistic. John blamed his mom for not having a, for him not having a relationship with his dad and what he felt like was <clears throat> a rejection from her. Hmm. In a letter to his cousin, John Collins said that he told his mother the, quote, whole story. And he does this weird things where when he writes you letters, he'll capitalize whole words and like sentences like he's yelling. So he did whole story in all capitals, which John types in all caps. After he, okay, so he's saying on the last time my mom visited, I told her the whole story. After he, he last vis, uh, she last visited with her son, John's mom wrote him out of the will and suggested that John gets nothing. So he's like, on that last visit, I told her everything. And after that last visit, she cuts him out of the will. Hmm. She cuts him out of everything. So she knows everything. She's dead now, though. In the letters, John blames his roommate, Arnold Davis, for the death of Karen Bynuman. In July, August, in November of 2019, the Detroit Free Press emailed John Norman Collins. They also asked a son of one of his former attorneys, Frank, to write him. John did respond to the Frank um, to Frank with an email, which can be read by following the Detroit Free Press link that I have below. So it's going to be on the show notes. It's interesting, but it's just filled with denials. He's like, it wasn't me. Swear to God, somebody else. I can't believe you're in jail. Yeah. You're in prison. Uh-huh. For murdering someone mm-hmm. and you have email. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's cheaper than sending stuff to the mail mail. But it's restricted ca- email, though. Who cares if it's cheaper? Yeah, I do. We pay, because we, we pay for mail mail. Because if you think about it, no, if, they, if they have mail sent, we got to pay someone to sort their mail that comes in, blah, blah, blah. Email is just email. So I wrote, side note, on Michigan's Otis website, it has information that includes his nicknames, which are Waterhead. And John Chapman. So he remember he has a cousin, John Chapman. Mm-hmm. Chapman is the name of John's biological father. 
And it's his new legal name. He had it changed to John Chapman, which is the same name as his Canadian cousin, right? Oh, should I mention that twice? So, but John currently lives in the Marquette Branch Prison because he's actually known for trying to escape a lot. And now he's at the Marquette Branch. Hmm. So tell me your story. It can't be that bad. Well, hold on. Yeah. What what kind of car did John drive? A uh, blue-gray Chevrolet. So obviously. Yeah. It's him, dude. Into it. Yeah, well, I wonder why won't they do the... They said that they have DNA from the two other girls. I'm, I'm thinking maybe they don't want to test it because if it proves that it's not him, that could be problematic, you know what I mean? Because they did Jane Mixer's DNA and it wasn't him. You know what I mean? I think you do, just so you know. All right. Well, tell me. I, I, I'm with you on that one. Hmm. I'm, just, I'm just guessing why they haven't done it yet, you know? Yeah. But tell me about how Addison died. So on August 20th, 2019, in the morning hours, and in, this is in Arcada. Okay. A-R-C-A-D-A. Arcadia. 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 Or the, no, just, I don't know. It's Arcada. ADA. ADA, Arcada then. Arcadia. It is now. Town. If someone wants to complain, I spell my name A-L-I. <laughs> uh, township. Addison, age 11, was found by a relative or sibling. Oh, no, a little girl? Mm-hmm. Conflict. These are conflicting stories. Some of the articles I read said it was a relative that found her. Some of them said that it was her brother. Okay. It was reported... This relative or brother called Addison's father, who then called the police. Okay. Now, first, that's just, I mean, I just. Well, if it was a kid, mind. I could see the kid panicking and calling, like, the dad or something like that. Yeah, well, so maybe it is the kid and not a relative. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't know, shit. but either which way you dial 911. I think that if I was younger, yeah. I'd still dial 911. You think so? Yeah, I'd be I dialing 911. I am of the age that there wasn't always 911. I remember. Actually, it's interesting. Ohio, I had 911. Moved here. My dad had fallen down the stairs and was unconscious, and Uh I tried to dial 911, and Michigan didn't have it. I'm like, how do you not have 911? What did you end up dialing? Um, Zero for the operator? No, I don't. I remember my mom taking the phone. I don't. I don't okay. remember after that. I yep. just remember thinking, "Holy crap, we're in a damn state." You moved me somewhere. It didn't have nine one one. Well, I remember babysitting, and they would show you the list of numbers. Here's the police number because you used to have to know the number to the police station. Mm-hmm. Here's the number to the police station. Here's the number to the hospital. Here's the number to poison control. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So she, no, that's <laughs> okay. So she had been home alone that night. The night before. Okay. The police gathered evidence, called it a homicide, and had one person of interest. The police also stated there was no harm to the community. So obviously this person of interest must be someone. Close to her. Close to her. Okay. But nothing's ever mentioned. Couldn't find anything on it. Okay. So I couldn't find any reports on what the police believed happened, nor the person of interest. I couldn't. Find anything after August 28th. That always kills like me. There was nothing, not a follow-up. I mean, I went to the community paper. Oh, yeah. And so all we know is she was home alone. Okay. The gun used to kill her was not found. And the autopsy did confirm it was a homicide. 
But what, what happened? I don't know. I wish I had the nuts to call a police station. I wish my balls, I've got pretty big balls and people are like, you're very bold, but my balls aren't that big. I'm afraid of police officers for some reason. <laughs> and I'm yeah. scared to bother them to see what they're doing because I'm afraid it might make them mad. Well, it's on my list to continue to. Good. Keep Google that on the list. And, and so you find, you would think you found something. Our next episode, we should do the one where we do all follow-ups on things that have occurred since then. All I'll right. try to work on that. Don't worry. You've got this. <laughs> You've been listening to Michigan and Other Mayhem with Allie and Jen. Connect with us at michiganothermayhem.com to join the conversation, listen to the podcast, access the show notes, find site links, or correct us when necessary. Rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Anchor, or YouTube. Bye-bye now.